Section 12 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Erickson, Part 2. In the work of introducing his propellers, good progress was made, especially in boats built for use on the Great Lakes, so that by 1844, when the USS Princeton went into commission, there were in use some 25 vessels with the screw propeller as a means of propulsion. The project of building a vessel for the American Navy, the purpose which had most strongly attracted Ericsson to the United States, suffered long delay in connection with the arrangements between Captain Stockton and the naval authorities at Washington. At length, in 1841, Captain Stockton was authorized to proceed with the construction of a screw steam frigate of about 1,000 tons. This was the USS Princeton, which marks an epoch as the first screw vessel of war. She was followed by the French Pomone in 1843 and the English Amphion in 1844, for the equipment of which Ericsson's agent in England, Count von Rosen, received commissions from the French and English governments respectively. The Princeton was completed in due time and was equipped with two 12-inch wrought iron guns, one brought by Ericsson from England and one designed and built under the direction of Captain Stockton. At the trials of the ship in 1844, the latter gun exploded, killing the secretaries of state and of the Navy, besides other prominent visitors on board, and wounding several others. This terrible disaster threw an entirely undeserved stigma upon the ship herself and upon Ericsson's work, and it was not until many years after that his name was entirely free from some kind of reproach in connection with the Princeton and the deplorable results of the accident on board. These are some of the principal lines of work with which Ericsson occupied himself during the 22 years between 1839 and 1861. At the latter date came the supreme opportunity of his life, and his services in the art of naval construction during the remainder of the Civil War, which was then in progress, are a part of the history of that great struggle. Here, as with the propeller, volumes might be written in the attempt to give a full account of the inception, growth, and final vindication of Ericsson's ideas regarding naval offense and defense, as expressed by the means available in the engineering practice of the day. The leading points only can be summarized. The question of armored ships was in the air. The advantages of armor had already been demonstrated on the French ship Gloire, and others in connection with the naval part of the Crimean War, and there was a feeling that ironclads of some kind were a necessity of the situation. These facts were perhaps more clearly realized at the South than at the North, and early in 1861 we find Mr. Stephen R. Mallory, the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, taking active steps to raise the Merrimack, which had been sunken at the Norfolk Navy Yard, and convert her into an armor-clad. Information regarding this project naturally became known to the federal authorities and occasioned President Lincoln and the entire cabinet the most serious anxiety. At length, on August 3, 1861, the appointment of a board was authorized, the duty of which it should be to examine into the question fully, obtain plans, and recommend the construction of such armor clads as they should judge best suited to the demands of the situation. Shortly after this, Erickson forwarded to President Lincoln a communication in which he offered to construct a vessel for the destruction of the rebel fleet at Norfolk and for scouring the southern rivers and inlets of all craft protected by rebel batteries. 
For one reason or another, this communication does not seem to have produced any immediate result. Later, however, when the board made its report dated September 16th, they registered the opinion that the present demand called for vessels invulnerable to shot of light draft of water before going into a more perfect system of large ironclad seagoing vessels of war. In pursuance of this idea, they recommended the construction of three vessels, Ericsson's floating battery, a broadside vessel later known as the Ironsides, and the Galena. Mr. C.S. Bushnell, who was instrumental in bringing Ericsson's plans actually before the board, later associated with himself and Ericsson in the project two gentlemen of means and large manufacturers of iron plate, Mr. John A. Griswold and Mr. John F. Winslow, who advanced most of the money needed, Mr. Bushnell supplying the remainder. The keel was laid October 25, 1861, and the monitor, as she was named by Erickson, was launched January 30, 1862, and was turned over to the government February 19, 1862. This brief record of construction leaves untold all history of the ceaseless struggle against time and of the superb organization and distribution of the work which made possible the completion of such a piece of work in the period of 100 working days. One important fact which goes far to explain this astonishing speed in design and construction is found in the fact that Erickson was not dealing with an entirely new and freshly developed proposition. He has stated that the thought of a floating battery, which should be small in size, but impregnable to the heaviest guns known, and yet heavily armed herself, had long occupied his thoughts in connection with the problem of the defense of Sweden. Ericsson never forgot his native land and gave to her political troubles and to the question of her defense against her more powerful neighbors much serious thought. As a result of this study, he had produced, as early as 1854, a design embodying all the essential features of the monitor, and this design, shown by a model, was in that year sent to Napoleon III, who was then at war with Russia. This was in the hope that he might in this way contribute to the overthrow of the latter, the hereditary enemy of his native land. The design, however, was not adopted, and after it was returned was laid aside to collect the dust of his office, until the experiences of the Civil War brought it again to the light. The plan in all its main features had therefore long been matured, and it only remained to proceed rapidly with the details and with the realization of the idea in the most suitable materials to be obtained. The result of the battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack in Hampton Roads is a part of history. The relentless devastation which the latter had begun on the old wooden ships of the American Navy at Hampton Roads was stayed, and the wild fears at the North concerning the destruction which she might cause to the shipping and to the seaboard cities was calmed. The Merrimack met her master and retired from the conflict, crippled and shorn of power for further evil. A short time later, she sank beneath the waters of the Chesapeake and is now remembered only as the antagonist of the Monitor. If the result of this battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack marked a turning point in the naval aspect of the Civil War, it wrought a no less marked change in the standing and fortunes of her designer. Some of his engineering efforts had not met with the success for which he or his friends had hoped. The engines of the airship, while a success as a piece of mechanism, were so enormous and heavy that she had to be considered as a commercial failure, and the venture was not repeated. The deplorable accident on the Princeton was by some held to be in part chargeable to Ericsson, though a later and full knowledge of the circumstances shows that such was in no wise the case. Again, Ericsson, as an experimenter and pioneer, was by some considered a dreamer, and before the monitor was completed, there was no lack of croakers who prophesied failure or who openly ridiculed the idea.
This condition was, of course, natural. In many ways, Erickson was ahead of his age, and again, it must not be supposed that he avoided mistakes or that all of his work fully realized the expectations which were based upon it. Furthermore, Erickson's spirit was proud, and he was little disposed to accept criticism from those whom he felt to be unqualified to pass adequate judgment on his work, while he was especially impatient under the system by which government work was done. He was therefore but little disposed to pleasantly submit to the exasperating delays and interferences with his work which arose from the methods of doing public business, and it is no more than the simple truth to say that during the preceding years, the relations between Erickson and the officials of the Navy Department had often become seriously strained, and they were seldom in cordial accord regarding the various questions which arose in connection with his public work. With the demonstration made by the Monitor, however, the attitude of the public changed in a moment, and Erickson was hailed on every hand as a public benefactor. He received the thanks of Congress on March 28, 1862, and of the legislature of the state of New York a little later. Besides these, he was the recipient of numbers of memorials and mementos, and of such praise in every form as might well have disturbed the equilibrium of a mind less well-balanced. In all this change of public opinion, the one thing which must have given him the deepest satisfaction was the change in the attitude of the naval authorities at Washington. He was now considered as one whose ideas had demonstrated their right to serious and respectful attention, and a large fleet of vessels of the monitor type was ordered, similar to but larger than the prototype, and containing such minor changes as experience had suggested. Yet even this was not accomplished without objection. The officers of the Navy were accustomed to the old type of wooden ship and were slow to realize that naval war was, after all, an engineering problem, and that the ideas of the engineer must now be substituted for those which had been sanctified by long ages of past experience. Still, the demonstration was too convincing to admit of serious question, and Erickson and his associates in business were busily occupied during the remainder of the war in the design and construction of a numerous fleet of vessels of the monitor type. Erickson's work during this period was enormous. One design followed another in quick succession, while work of supervision and inspection and cares of a business nature all combined to make a burden which would have broken down a nature less determined and self-centered, and a body less inured to physical endurance and sustained nervous tension. This prodigious load was not so much but that he found time to devote to the needs of other nations— and in 1862, he offered to construct for the Chilean government a monitor similar to those under construction for the United States, while later a similar offer was made to the Peruvian government. With the close of the Civil War, Erickson found still further time to devote to the introduction of this type of vessel into foreign navies, and a considerable part of his time seems to have been occupied with projects of this character, and more particularly with the question of the naval defense of his native land. As regards the introduction of warships of the monitor type, the results were not so pronounced as might have been expected, and while the influence of the idea is seen in the practice of every maritime nation in regard to the construction of its warships, still, for the most part, the leading nations preferred to make application of the idea in their own way, rather than order such vessels direct from their original designer. Yet in not a few cases the original type was faithfully copied, though it is not always clear to what extent Erickson himself may have had direct contact with their designs. In 1866, the Swedes were able to test the first of a small fleet of monitors built after Erickson's plans. This was called the John Erickson, and was armed with two 15-inch guns presented to Sweden by Erickson himself. Later in 1868, he designed for Spain and superintended the construction of 30 small gunboats for use in Cuban waters. 
For nearly 10 years now, Erickson had devoted most of his energies to the art of war. It was a time of change and unrest. Heavy guns and armor had brought about a complete break with the past. The torpedo, which had made its appearance in crude form during the Civil War, was attracting more and more attention, and questions of naval offense and defense and of the best governmental policy were attracting the serious attention of all whose duty led them into relation with such matters. Into this problem in its broadest aspects, Erickson threw himself in the early 70s with all the ardor of his younger days. It is proper to explain here that there was one feature of the earlier plans which were submitted to Napoleon III in 1854, which he did not embody in the Monitor, and which indeed was omitted from all published plans and descriptions of the system given out in former years. This was the system of submarine or subaqueous attack, which, he states in a letter to John Bourne, had attracted his attention since 1826. The time now seemed ripe for the presentation and development of this idea, and he accordingly developed his designs for a torpedo and for a method of firing it underwater from a gun carried in the bow of a boat, and suitably opening to allow the discharge of the torpedo projectile. This was Erickson's so-called destroyer system, and was embodied, finally, in a boat called the Destroyer, which he built in company with his friend, Mr. C. H. Delamater, and with which he carried on numerous experiments. In the end, however, the system did not commend itself to the naval authorities, and the destroyer was left on her designer's hands, an instance of difference of opinion between Erickson and those charged with the duty of naval administration, but with no supreme test of war to provide opportunity for the determination as to which were the more correct in their judgment. With the destroyer and his work in connection with her, closes the record of Erickson's connection with the advance in naval construction. During these later years of his life, it must not be supposed that he was less busily occupied than in earlier life. He was a nature which knew no rest, and to the last day of his life he was literally in the harness. Only brief mention, however, can be made of some of the more important lines of work which interested the closing years of Erickson's life. In connection with his naval designs, he devoted much study to the improvement of heavy ordnance, both as to the gun and its mounting. In particular, his mounting of the guns in the monitor was quite original, and the friction arrangement for absorbing the recoil was a great improvement over methods then in use, and served as a model for many copies and adaptations of the same principles in later years by other designers. In 1863, he also designed and built for the acceptance of the government a forged 13-inch wrought iron gun. While his design was an advance on those of the day, the demands on the makers of iron forgings were more than could be successfully met, and the gun developed some slight cracks in the test which prevented further developments on this line. Erickson always maintained that the tests to which this gun was submitted were unfairly severe, and he showed how the defects could be remedied by a steel lining. But the Naval Bureau of Ordnance insisted that this should be done at his own expense, and as he had already lost some $20,000 on the gun, he was unwilling to proceed farther, and the matter was allowed to lapse. Throughout his entire career, the improvement of the steam engine occupied a large share of Erickson's attention, and in particular was this the case in connection with his naval designs. From the Princeton in 1841 to the Destroyer in 1878, there succeeded one long series of types and forms of steam engine, each in his opinion the best adapted to the circumstances of the case. Naturally, opinions differ, and he was brought into competition with other able engineers, and his designs were often called into question or subjected to criticism. In 1863, in competition with the chief engineer Isherwood of the Navy, engines were designed for twin ships, the Madawaska, afterward known as the Tennessee, and the Wampanoag, 
afterward called the Florida. This was a battle royale of types and modes of application of the power of the steam engine to the propulsion of ships. The result was a victory for Isherwood, although the Madawaska, which was first subjected to trial, made a speed higher than any warship at that time afloat. This was exceeded by the Wapanong a short time later, but neither engine was of an enduring type, and after a time the machinery of the Madawaska was removed and she was repowered with a later type of machinery and long did service as the Tennessee in the list of wooden frigates of the Navy. The Florida was too expensive to maintain in commission, and the special circumstances which had called her into existence having passed by, she was laid up at New London and never again saw active service. Keenly as Erickson was interested in the steam engine, it must be admitted that he always showed a more profound interest in some form of engine which should be able to displace it with a superior efficiency, and hence his long series of efforts relating to the flame engine, the caloric engine, the gas engine, and finally the solar engine, with either steam or heated air as the medium for carrying the heat. During the last years of his life, some of his most patient and careful study was given to the perfection of a solar engine, or engine for utilizing directly the heat of the sun instead of that of coal or other carbon compounds. Besides this direct line of study and experimentation, he gave during these years much thought to various scientific problems connected with solar energy, the tides, gravitation, the nature of heat, etc., etc. A plan for deriving power from the tides, improvements in high-speed engines for electric lighting purposes, further improvements in his hot air engine in small sizes for commercial purposes. These are some of the further lines of work which occupied the attention of his closing years. But the most cunningly devised of all mechanisms, the heart and brain, must sooner or later tire and cease from their labors. The motive energy becomes exhausted, and the mechanism must cease its work. So it was with John Erickson. In the first hour of the morning of March 8, 1889, Erickson died. This was within one day of the 27th anniversary of the battle at Hampton Roads, the event with which the name of Erickson will always be associated, and which has given to it a significance that will never be forgotten. His remains were first interred in New York, and then, in 1890, in accordance with the request of the Swedish government, they were returned with impressive services to his native land, where they now rest. In his death he received his highest honors, for his remains were conveyed across the Atlantic by the USS Baltimore, one of the new ships of the Navy specially detailed for that service, and on both sides, in the United States and in Sweden, the event was marked with every honor and ceremony which could indicate the significance of his life and services for his adopted land and for the world at large. The two pieces of work which perhaps will be most permanently linked with the name of Ericsson are the screw propeller as a means of marine propulsion and the monitor as a type of warship. In addition to these, however, his life work was rich in results which bore direct relation to many other improvements in the broad field of marine engineering and naval architecture. Of these, a few of the more important may be mentioned, such as the surface condenser, distiller, and evaporator, forced draft for combustion, placing machinery of warships below the waterline, and their protection by coal, ventilation by fan blowers, together with a vast variety of items involved in the conception and design of the monitor as a whole, and in his other naval designs. In order to appreciate the influence of Erickson's life and work on the field of marine construction, a brief glance may profitably be taken at this branch of engineering work as it was before Ericsson's time and as it is now. The material employed for shipbuilding was almost entirely wood. This was displaced in the 60s and 70s by iron, which in turn was displaced by steel, 
so that at the present time, except for special reason, no material other than steel is thought of for this purpose. With the gradual displacement of wood by iron in the mercantile marine, Erickson's relation was only indirect. Some of the earlier mercantile vessels in which he was interested were of wood and some of iron. In the field of warship construction, however, his influence through the monitor was more direct, especially as to the value of metal armor as a protection against great gunfire. Still, it is no more justice to say that with the change from wood to iron which took place during the active part of his life, Erickson had only an indirect relation, and the change would doubtless have come about at the same time, and in much the same general way as it did, independent of any influence which his work may have had upon the question. Turning to the means of propulsion, we find sails as the main, or almost only, reliance during the early years of the century. The steam engine operating paddle wheels had come to be recognized as a possibility, and under certain conditions as a commercial success. The screw propeller as a means of propulsion was known only as a freak idea, and was without status or recognition as a commercial or practical means for propelling ships. So far as the screw propeller was thought of as a means of propulsion, it lay under a suspicion of loss of efficiency due to the oblique nature of its action, and this was supposed to be such as to render it necessarily and essentially less efficient than the paddle wheel. Erickson lived to see the use of sails almost entirely discarded for war purposes and for mercantile purposes relegated to ships for special service and of continually decreasing importance. He lived to see the steam engine take its place as the only means for supplying the power required to propel warships and attain a position of almost equal relative importance in the mercantile marine. He lived to see the paddle wheel grow in importance and estimation as a means of propulsion only in turn to be supplanted by the screw propeller, which gradually increased in engineering favor from the days of its obscure infancy until it became the only means employed for the propulsion of ships navigating the high seas, while it had become a most serious rival to the paddle wheel even for the purposes of interior and shallow water navigation. Long a field considered as peculiarly suited to the paddle wheel and to the engines adapted to its operation. Regarding the change from wind to steam for the motive power of ships, Erickson did his full share among the engineers of his day, but it would be unfair to many others to claim for him any exclusive or preponderating influence in this movement, and in such matters it is difficult to clearly define the services of any one man. The lines of progress, however, have been in accord with his studies, and his work has certainly had a most direct and powerful influence upon the movement. The most important points of contact between Erickson's work and these advances were in connection with his introduction of the surface condenser, the use of artificial draft, devices for heating feed water, his studies in superheated steam and its use, and his work in connection with the development of the compound principle in steam engines, his relation to the introduction of the screw propeller, and to the use of twin screws at a later time. He also devised and adapted many new types of engines for marine purposes, having respect to the geometrical character of the connections by means of which a reciprocating motion of the piston may be transformed into a rotary motion of the shaft. In particular, he was the first to introduce and show the advantages of engines directly connected to the propeller shaft instead of through the more indirect and clumsy modes which others had previously thought necessary. Aside from his relation to the screw propeller, perhaps no item of his work in connection with the steam engine is of more importance than the surface condenser with its variant forms in the distiller and evaporator. If Erickson had done nothing else, his claims to recognition and remembrance as an engineer and benefactor might have been well founded on his work in this connection. 
As it is, the fact that he was so largely instrumental in their perfection and adaptation to marine uses is well nigh forgotten in the brighter light of his other achievements. End of section 12.